in your Bibles to Job 42. And as we do that, I want to just make a couple comments, give you some time to get there, right before Psalms. Um, as I prepared for verses 7 to 17, uh, my first point was as long as my normal notes for a sermon. So when I got to point three, and it was double the length of my normal, I realized, well, it looks like I'm only going to be able to preach point one. So no, 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 no believe me. I'm preaching point one th this morning. So that means all that awesome, great stuff about um, atoning sacrifice and blood sacrifice, that's coming. Hang in there. It's coming. It's coming next week when, when God calls upon the three friends of Job to bring sacrifices and for Job to pray that God might not deal with them according to their folly. Great gospel stuff, but you're going to have to hang on because that's going to be next week. And it will be online for those of you who, if you're just left, I have to know what happens. It'll be on the New City um, website, so if you're not um, with us normally. So just that's the word I wanted to give to you. The second thing I want to say is let's get all the laughs, the chuckles, let's get it over with now. I am going to be using an illustration from Karate Kid 3. So see, so you get that laugh over now, so you'll get the actual point that I'm trying to make. <laughs> Instead of usually by the time I'm in the middle of, of the illustration, you guys start settling down. So, all right, karate, hey, I'm an Italian-American. You know, I'm not going to apologize for that. So that was a big thing for us. Daniel's son, I'm on his team. Anyway, Miyagi Dojo. Woo! All right, so let's uh, open our Bibles to um, Job 42. Beginning in verse 7, we will read the whole text. And um, so this is really part one of a two-part sermon that really does go together. Just breaking it up for time-wise. So please stand up for the reading of God's holy, authoritative word. Hear the word of God to you this morning. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and so far the Naamanthite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land where there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, 
Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died, old and full of years. That sends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, in our study of the book of Job, it's been a, quite a long journey, even though we didn't take it verse by verse, and you're all going, thank you. <laughs> it's still, no matter how you break it up, it took a while. Uh, but particularly as we study that long middle section of dialogues where there's three cycles of debates with him and his friends and Job crying out to God, we've heard a lot of talk about God's anger. I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, Job's friends certainly interpreted Job's suffering as a clear sign that the anger of God was upon him. Apparently, he must have done some great sin, and that's why he's suffering this, so God is mad. And for them, God is mad at who? Job. Because look at his pathetic self. Job, on the other hand, this is an interesting thing, as I've really been meditating on this a lot. Job, on the other hand, do for a fact that his suffering was not brought on by any particular wickedness. Right? He knew that in his heart. He knew it before God. And he continued to cry out for vindication against his friend's false accusations. But with Job, he just couldn't figure out, okay, so it's not, if it's not this, this great wickedness that I've done, then why is God treating me like this? Right? We've seen that he's been crying out throughout the book. He just can't figure out why. But there's one thing they both had in common. It really dawned on me as I studied this. They both interpreted the suffering of Job as what? God's anger. Did you notice that? So Job thought God was angry. He just didn't know why. The friends thought he was angry because Job sinned. But here's the thing. God finally speaks out of the storm. Remember that last week? Some of you remember last week God addresses Job you know, he says, now I'm going to talk. Sit down, brace yourself like a man. I'm going to ask you questions, and you're going to answer me. Remember that from last week, last time. When God finally speaks out of the storm, it's interesting not only what he says. We dealt with that last week. I don't have time to do that this week. But it's also interesting what he never says. He never says to Job, what? I'm mad at you. He never says to Job, I was mad at you. We don't hear about his anger at all. Now, it's true, Job does get a major attitude adjustment, right? Because Job definitely stepped over the bounds when in trying to justify himself. He threw, tried to throw shade on God and his justice, say, this is unjust. And that's where God had to say, wait a minute, I was with you all the way to that point. Where were you? <laughs> and then you know that whole line of reasoning. Does, does the lightning report to you? Do you? Did you set Orion in place? You know, that whole great thing. And if Job, of course, at the end says, he puts his hand on his mouth, right? And repents from dust and ashes. I spoke of things too wonderful for me. But so here's the interesting thing. Although we'll, you, can, you will search in vain throughout the whole book of Job to find God angry with Job, we finally come to the passage that we just read. We finally hear that God is angry. That's an interesting thing. I don't know if you noticed that. 
But notice, who's God angry with? It ain't Job. It's who? The three friends. God comes right out and says, I am angry with you to Eliphaz. He says, I'm angry with you and your friends. Why? Because you have not spoken correctly about me as who? My servant, Job has. That's a really interesting twist. And I think we've got to look at it this way. This is what really hit me. And it's this. Looks can be deceiving, can't they? You know, there's more than what meets the eye, the old saying goes. The guy who's lost everything, who's sitting on an ash heap, wrapped in pain and confusion, actually has God's approval and smile. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. While you have these healthy guys who seem, seem to be orthodox in their theology, waxing eloquent, healthy lives, healthy families, and God is angry at them. He is burning with anger. See, here's the, if there's anything, there's a lot of things we're going to see the book of Job teaches. If there's anything we see that the book of Job teaches is that sometimes the righteous do suffer. And as a matter of fact, sometimes they suffer horribly. It's a fact. You know, we often talk about grasping God's grace, that we get his unmet, we did nothing to earn his favor, his forgiveness, his salvation. Well, some, we also have to realize in that same economy, therefore, that sometimes we don't earn the suffering either. God brings it for his own reasons, for his glory, for our good, and to further his bigger overarching plan that our little pea brains could never understand. You know, I remember my, my professor seminary used to say, some people are like, well, my brain can't catch, ain't no fish. Here's the problem. Sometimes the fish is so big, your little net just can't fit it. And certainly when it comes to God, he wouldn't be God if he can fit in our finite minds. We've seen that again and again. Well, way back in ancient times, listen, this is pretty interesting. Before King David, before the giving of the law through Moses, Probably about the time of Abraham, many scholars believe, and I believe it myself, Job prefigured, he pointed ahead to, he foreshadowed what? The suffering servant of God who suffered in innocence, unjustly received the mocking of men and the mistreatment of men from a tree of pain. And Job definitely prefigures the Christ, just as David did in his day, and others like Daniel did as well. But as we take this last look, and we'll get into that in way more detail next time, but as we take a look at the ending of Job this week and next week, we're going to see three things, and we're going to focus on the first one this morning. We're going to see, first of all, the vindication of Job. Job is vindicated. Secondly, we're going to see the intercession of Job. Notice Job turns around and prays for the very people who made his life a living misery. You know, with friends like that who needs enemies, that whole thing. You know. And third of all, we will see the exaltation of God's servant, Job, at the end. And if you can't already see where that's going, <laughs> Job was just a prefigure of the real servant. Because as we know throughout the book of Job, Job... As you mentioned about uh, pastors, Job was not perfect. Mm -hmm. 
You know, he even confessed sin in the book. He just said, this particular suffering, I didn't do anything particularly deserve that. And he was right, as we'll see. So let's take a look at the very first point, which actually has a dual uh, truth in it. And we're going to take a look at it. It's the vindication of Job, and um, that's what we're going to spend our time in. So here's the interesting thing I want to point out from the text we just read, particularly verses 7 and 8. And speaking to Job's friend Eliphaz, the Lord refers to Job as my servant Job. Listen, this is important. Four times in the space of two verses. We're talking emphasis. We're talking God rubbing it in, my servant, my servant, my chosen one, my man that I saved by my grace, that I held up as an example of my handiwork. And twice he repeats the phrase, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So you see, if you didn't know this ending, as we're going through all those arguments with his friends back and forth, you know, sometimes they have a hard time figuring it all out. Well, God says, in the main, Job spoke what is right. And uh, if you remember earlier in the book, it says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So we also have to remember the prologue of the book before I get to really preaching here. I've got to remind you of this where God asked Satan if he considered his servant Job, and God gave this glowing report about him. If you remember, I'm going to quote it. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So much for us saying that we identify with Job. That's where you can say amen. Because God says, guess what? There's no one on earth like him. So let's get that out of your mind. But Satan comes back, you see. It's not enough. You know, and you know what the word Satan means? The name? Accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. And true to his form, he answers this to God. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? And what's he basically saying to God? He's saying, Job only serves you for the benefits you provide. You know why he's such a good guy? It's because you give him health, you give him wealth, you give him happiness, you give him honor among his fellows. A happy life, a happy wife, a happy family. Who else wouldn't serve God for that? What, you have to let this sink in a minute. What he is saying is, he's saying to God, basically, you bought his love. You bought it. He's a bought man. You know, my wife always says, when I, if I die and come back, well, you don't believe in reincarnation, but she says, I want to come back as a Garofola cat. Because <laughs> we take such good care of our cats as spoiled. And that's what, God is, that's what Satan is saying to God. That's the way you treat Job, and that's why he loves you. You know, my cat does do that. Do you ever know my cat's always like, nee, nee. I'm like, oh, she's hugging me. And then I'm, oh, it's dinner time. <laughs> that's what it is. I thought she was just singling me out because she loved me, you know? So God is basically saying, only way you can, I mean, Satan is basically saying to God, the only way you can get people to serve you willingly is by buying them off. I remember a family growing up, and it was a very sad situation. He was a, a, maybe not the most popular kid 
and the parents would do everything to get kids to play with them. Built, you know, had a big pool in the backyard, installed this big pool, and that would be, and then they would, they would watch movies on HBO, which some of our families weren't allowed to have HBO, so we would be invited to go over, and, and all these different things that they would offer so that kids would come and play with their kid. But guess what happened when those things dried up? The kid was alone again. It's very sad, right? When you have to buy friendship. And think about it from God's end, and think about it from your own end. Do you want somebody who loves you just for what they can get out of you? You know, when the phone only rings, it's almost some people you want to say, okay, what do you want? What do you need? Let's just get to it. Because it breaks your heart. You're not trying to be mean. It's just like, I am a person, you know? This is what basically got, what, what Satan was accusing God of. And I believe David Helm, um, I've listened to tons of sermons on these passages. I've read many commentaries and uh, sifted through a lot of stuff um, to try to really discern what's going on here in the whole book of Job. And the ending really helps give us this punch. David Helm, I think, says it so well. I'm not even going to put it in my words. I'm going to quote from him. He says this. This is the main question the book of Job asks and answers. Is God capable of building a people for himself that will love him regardless of the benefits bestowed upon them? That's what the book of Job's all about. If I made a YouTube video about the book of Job, that would be the opening statement. That'd be the theme. And what's interesting here, and this is where I want you, I told you it was a, the point kind of had two points to the one point, and that's this. Job's vindication Listen, this is so important to catch. I don't want you to miss it. Is really the vindication of God. It's not ultimately the vindication of great Job. It's the vindication of the great and holy and mighty and majestic and awesome God. That saves by his grace. Job was merely exhibit A of the power of God's grace to save a people for himself who serve and love him not merely for earthly benefits and perks that they can get out of him, but rather out of a heart of love and gratitude for grace so freely and generously and sacrificially given. And this is where the scene from Karate Kid 3 comes in. My buddy Daniel's son, and Dave reminds me, he's a fictional character, dude. That's all right. I still like him. He's been getting whooped by this bad boy, Mike Barnes. And the other side there, the Cobra Kai Dojo, they hired, that literally paid a guy, the baddest guy that, 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 that could qualify to fight Daniel, to literally beat him up so bad and humiliate him so bad. Um, they didn't even care uh, the, the win and losing thing. They, they just wanted to really make him suffer and be embarrassed. And so that's the scenario. The scenario is, the point was, here's the plan. I want you to beat him up so bad that you, you give him a point and then you take back a point. So in other words, you know, you hurt him and get to squat you know, and, and that point won't count and then try another point. So he did that and they did that and they really beat up on Daniel well until it was, the score was 2-2 and the next point wins. And at this point, Daniel has had enough. He's on the ground. He's, he's clutching his bruised ribs, and he's scared to death to get up, to get back on that line and fight that last, uh, uh, for the last point. And of course, Miyagi gets on the mat and gives him this encouraging, you know, almost like that Rocky, you know, this great talk. 
to get up. But you know what's interesting? Daniel doesn't get right up. He still just kind of stays on the ground. But then the, the enemy, Mike Barnes, jumps down to his level, puts his face by his face. And I'm going to quote from the movie. I took out the cussing, most of it anyway. And, he bats up. and this is what he says to him. And I want you to see this because this to me was always powerful. He says, come on, get up. Get on that line. Get on that line, LaRusso. You're a joke. Your karate's a joke and your teacher isn't worth anything. He's nothing. You're nothing. And you're nothing. I own you. I own you, LaRusso. Where's your little Jap teacher now, huh? He's a phony, man. He's a fake. And he didn't teach you nothing and you ain't nothing. And of course, Danson looks over at Miyagi, who's standing there humbly, short Japanese guy, older gentleman, gray hair. And that inspires Daniel's son. It's Hollywood, of course. He gets up. He gets back on the line. And he remembers Miyagi's words, your best karate still inside. Time let out. And he starts doing this strange, weird kata stuff. So the other guy's like, what, what is this guy tripping? What's going on here? And his side is going, his side goes, get the point, get the point. And of course, he does this weird Miyagi magic weird thing, and boom, he gets the point. And here's the thing, though, I want you to see why I use that illustration. It wasn't Daniel's son that was vindicated. It was his teacher. And I rewatched to make sure I had this right. He, Daniel's son actually grabs Miyagi's hand at the end and lifts it up. And that's, that's a sentimental, emotional Hollywood version of it. And, but the point from that illustration I want you to understand here is that it wasn't Job on trial in that sense. It was God. And Job, of course, the difference is Job didn't know this. Job didn't know he was God's champion. And of course, if he did know it, then the whole thing wouldn't work. The question is, will he keep serving God even when he doesn't understand why? It's the question that's asked every day of us true believers. Why are you serving him? We're going to get to that. You see, Satan was basically saying, this is it. Your servant is fake. He's a joke. He's not the real thing. He's a phony and you're a phony too. He only sticks with you because you keep him safe, secure, and happy. But here's what's interesting, and I want you to see this. This is important. I almost missed it in my earlier sermons. God only lets Satan go as far as he has to to prove the point. Remember, he says, this far, Satan, and no further. I'll give you the room. And I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He says he gives Satan just enough room to hang himself. We remember that in the New Testament, don't we? God foreordained Christ's death on the cross. You, but you with wicked hands, put him to death. What did the devil do on the cross? God's will. <laughs> All hell was having a party, and heaven was going, just wait. Third day is almost here. And it came, and God's true, holy, perfect servant was vindicated, and so was God's salvation by grace. You know, after months and months of relentless suffering and humiliation, uh, 
I wish you could have been with us throughout the book. And uh, I'm sure my people were like, please, can we stop preaching on these middle passages of the misery of Job? But after months and months, the reason why we need to sit through that is to see the agony that Job went through. And here's the beauty of the grace of God. The man of God never curses God. He never says, I'm done with you. After all I've done, keeping my I don't even look at a woman to lust after. I, and, and any widow that's ever been in need, I've taken care of. And this is my repayment. I'm done serving you. Does he ever say that? Never. There's no anger and bitterness in that and that's aspect. Oh, Job struggled and he struggled hard because real Christians do struggle. But he never cursed God. Think about it this way. And this is why I want to just stick with this one point as we, uh, for this morning's purposes. I want to let this sink in and learn this lesson that I need to learn and remind myself of. How would you like it if someone only loved you for what they can get? Like the person who divorces the wife of their youth because their face is now wrinkled? Because their body is weather and, and weather-worn from age and having their kids. And they no longer can look like eye candy when they go to the formal events so they trade them in for a younger model. Ha, ha, ha. Or the person who wants to be your best friend in order to tap in your network, in order to ride your success, your wave of success, and then suddenly just stop coming by when you start going through tough times and trials, the phone doesn't ring. By the grace and the mercy and the power of God, Job's not that guy. He's not phony. He's a trophy of God's grace. And as the Apostle Paul would put it thousands of years later, Job was God's workmanship created in, and we'll use Job's terminology, created in the kinsman redeemer to do good works, which God prepared in advance to walk in. Job wasn't perfect. He needed an attitude adjustment, and he was a sinner like you and me, and he needed the blood of Jesus as desperately as you and I do. But here Job was vindicated. He was the real deal. He was a real believer, in other words. He did fear God. He did shun evil. And the interesting thing is here that so was God's way of salvation vindicated, the way of grace and mercy and unmerited favor, not the way of human merit and human effort and human supposed deserving. See, when God saves somebody, he, praise his name, gives us a new destination. Amen? Amen. We have to look forward to uh, a place at his table in glory. That's awesome. And I will praise him for eternity for that. But there's something else God does when he saves a person. He gives them a change of heart Amen. and a new central focus of their lives. You know, I'm going to the New Testament for a moment here again, but I think of the cross reference, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live what? For themselves, Amen. but for him who died and rose again. 
Listen, I know I can't live like that if Jesus doesn't save me. It's not in me. I'm selfish. Yeah, don't pick on me. You're selfish too. I know that. Only Jesus can. When something good comes out of me, you've got to say, whoa, Jesus has been working on that guy. Whatever just came out of him, that ain't, that ain't him. See, only grace can do that. Because this is salvation by human merit, by human effort to do good, can never make someone safe from the heart when they've lost everything dear to them. Listen, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Where did that come from? It came from God came from God. Listen, what happens when someone who bases their life on human effort, when they think that it's a tit for tat with God, it's quid pro quo, what happens when trouble comes into their life? What comes out of their mouth? Blessed be the name of the Lord? No, you owe me. Look, if you think I'm making this up and I'm getting way off the track, listen. Our Lord Jesus told a story, you may remember it, I bet you most of you do. Story of called the prodigal son, which the more I studied it, I realized the younger son wasn't the prodigal, it was the older one. Well, he was prodigal, but the older one was more prodigal. Excuse me. <laughs> See what happens when I start to cry, kids? But if you remember what happens, the, the, the young son says, give me my half of the inheritance, and, and he leaves. The older son stays home. He leaves. He squanders it on, on sinful living, and then when he runs out of, of all of his money, his friends leave, fair weather friends. And he's feeding pigs, and he realizes, hey, man, I, I could, my father's servants eat better than this. I'm going to go, I, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say, I sinned against heaven. I sinned against you. Just take me back as your servant. You remember the story. He goes, and the father, when he sees him afar off, does what? He runs. The Bible says that. I don't know if you noticed it. The Bible says he runs. And he says, quick. The, the, first, the son confesses, and he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Take me as you would a servant. And the father says, quick, put a new robe on my son. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. For this son of mine was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. But you know that's not the punchline? Punchline is, he says, kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. And they're having a celebration. The older son's out there working because he's so dutiful, right? He says, hey, what's going on in there? He sees one of the servants. What's going on in there? Oh, your brother's come back, and your father's killed the fattened calf, and celebrate. And you remember what happens with the older son? He is ticked, and he refuses to go in. So what does the father do? The father comes out, and he says, son, come on, you know, come in. And you remember what, what the, the son says? All these years I've been what? Slaving for you. Wouldn't you be shocked if your loving child who you've given everything to, you've, you, you, you can't wait to hand over all that you've ever earned in your life, so to speak, to him, turns and says, I've slaved for you this whole life, my whole life. So that's what I am to you. The father still pleads with him and says, no, come on. He goes, we had to celebrate. Oh, and then he says, you've never even given me a young goat to celebrate. And what does the father say? All that I have is yours. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm not, Jesus would never say this, but I'm going to say, you dope. 
this whole time, you could have just said, hey, Dad, is it right if I have some friends over? We're going to cut it. <laughs> sure, son. Have, have at it, right? But what was the problem with the older son? He did not understand grace. His relationship was based on a quid pro quo. And so when grace was shown, he was just, he despised it. How dare you forgive that son? And he wouldn't even say, my brother, that son of yours. No, when you approach, when you approach a relationship with God that way, the way that Satan was accusing Job of approaching relationship with God, you're basically saying, this is a deal that we make. I wash your hands, you wash mine. Ever hear that? Scratch my back, I scratch yours. To which, of course, God laughs in heaven. Tim Keller points out, God and the poor become nothing but useful commodities to be used to get what we want. See, this is why it's important. Why do you serve the poor if you do? You think you're getting points? You think then God is going to owe you something? Why do you share the gospel with those who so desperately need the good news of Jesus? If you don't know the answer to that question, unfortunately, suffering will help you answer it. Because what happens when you keep yourself chaste until marriage, you wait for that special soulmate only to find a barely a year into your marriage that your husband's been cheating on you for the whole year with your best friend? Or how do you respond when you've been serving in the mission field, dedicating your life to God, making choices that you, maybe you could have uh, had other earthly blessings and, and pleasures in life, but you decided you're going to sacrifice, go on the mission field, and your only son, the one you had the high hopes was going to take over the mission for you, suddenly dies in a seemingly senseless accident. Let me get a little more personal. What happens when you're almost 10 years into a church plant, one that you envision tons of people flocking to, because it would be a place where all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all socioeconomic groups could come together in one roof, so to speak, and worship and serve and praise the Lord Jesus Christ and give him the credit. What happens when you do that and you're 10 years in and you've got about 30 to 40 souls, including children, if that, and you feel like you're living in the old Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby. Some of us would know that. Thanks for coming this morning. You're probably the only generation that would kind of know even what I'm talking about. Uh, but the Eleanor Rigby song has always been something that's always touched my heart. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father Mackenzie wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Right? You heard me quote from Keller a lot. He just, uh, there's a sermon he preached that, from this text that uh, was just outstanding. And I want to just mention this one illustration as we are coming to a close of this. Now you see why I didn't do all three points, right? <laughs> Keller mentions that um, there was a fiction novel by Elizabeth Elliot, and it's entitled No Graven Image. And it's a story about a 12-year-old missionary who moves to the Andes Mountains of Ecuador to start her ministry. She has a great start, gets in with the indigenous peoples, 
Uh, they begin to love her. She befriends a man who knows three different language and, languages, and he helps her to translate of their language into a written form, which has never been done before. And then from there, she starts translating on cards the Bible, portions of Scripture. Things are going great. God's blessing it. And then something happens. By an accident, she kills her translator. She gives him a batch of penicillin that's bad. The whole tribe turns on her. Takes, literally takes all her hard work that she's done for years and throws it in the river. And, and Keller points out something that, that um, he brought this to my attention. I thought it was very interesting. Um, he actually was able, he and his wife had a, a chance to talk to Elizabeth when her book had come out. And Elizabeth told them that the way that her book was received, that she actually received um, hate mail from Christians. Christians who said to her, there's no way God would treat one of his faithful servants like that. And the president of the seminary that Keller taught at took it off the reading lists. And when he was asked, he said, because no way would God let a dedicated servant go through such a disappointment. To which Elizabeth Elliot replied, not only, he, she said to the Kellers, not only in their theological righteousness had they not read the book of Job, because that's the whole point of the book of Job. The righteous do suffer, sometimes seemingly for no reason. But it really isn't that much of a fiction since it's based on basically what I experienced as a missionary. And the main character of the book, um, after facing the loss of everything she ever wanted to accomplish in the service of God, says this. This is powerful. So hang with me. We're on just a couple more moments. She says, now in the clear light of day, I see that God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. For God is God, and if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service, and I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will, listen, this is powerful, this is such Job stuff. And that will is infinitely immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he's up to. You know, a lot of times people say, I just want to see what God's up to and then I want to join him. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> no one has known the mind of the Lord. Who has been his counselor? When I was just a brand new believer, a few months old, I went bowling with some Christian friends, and uh, struck up a conversation with the girl in the next lane, and I was sharing the gospel with her. And as I was doing that, I, I, I got a nice zinger. I thought, hey, I could get witness in. And then I threw the bowling ball, and you know what happened. Gutter ball. And as I'm walking back to, get, to go to my seat, she goes, where was your God then? And God gave me the words that haunt me to this day because they convict me. I said to her, I'm God's servant. He's not mine. In other words, he's not a genie in a lamp. It doesn't, doesn't come. Yeah, that's right. Mic job. That's a good point. But you know, the 51-year-old Santo needs to learn from the 19-year-old Santo.
No matter what God has in store for my future, for your future, for this mission church, for this city that we love, for his church in America, we need to remember we're his servants, serving his overarching plan to glorify his son. He's not ours in that sense. When we're faced with unexplained suffering, confusion, disappointment, we can remember this and remember it well. Things are not always what they seem. We live by what? Faith, not by sight. Sometimes the sad, pathetic creature sitting on the ash heap is smack dab in the center of God's will. And how dare us add insult to injury and make them feel that they're not right with God just because of outward circumstances. And sometimes the naked bleeding figure of a man hanging from a criminal's executioner cross is right exactly where God wants him to be. And praise God, if he wasn't there, we would be lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Job. I, all these years I've read it here and there, but to have the opportunity to live with it for a while and, let it, and drink in its lessons and, and learn from the servant uh, that you used to show your power and your goodness and your grace even in the midst of the most horrific suffering. We thank you that what the devil meant for evil, you meant for good. And we thank you that that's true even today. And when we can't see, when we can't understand God, even now, Help us to trust your heart when we can't see your hand. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things and in reliance upon him. Amen.